So this uh, session is the Ask Swami session. We haven't had that for some time, and a lot of questions have accumulated. Uh, we will respond to some of them. Now here is an announcement. Uh, this is for not only all those who are here, but also the wider audience over the internet. That the qu questions which are uh, asked in this session, the Ask Swami session, they are public. First of all, they do not come to me directly. They are reviewed by a team of our volunteers. Then they are asked in public here in front of everybody and then broadcast across, over the internet. I think sometimes it is live. Is this live today? Today it's not live. Sometimes it's live and in any case it is recorded and broadcast over the internet. So the point is that um, personal questions, since this is a public forum, personal questions would not be appropriate. Many people, it is understandable, there's so much sorrow and suffering, people would like to ask questions about that. So if you can put it in an impersonal way, that would be uh, appropriate. Um, yes, so remember, just remember b before you write in with your questions to ask Swami that it's a very public for, uh, forum. The way it'll go is, first, um, Diane will ask questions from the internet audience, and then the live audience here, you get to ask questions. Just raise your hands and I'll ask you to come forward here. There's a microphone and a chair for you to sit on, and please tell us your name and then ask your question. So it'll go in by turn, the virtual audience and then your turn, and then again the virtual audience. Yes. Thank you. Um, the first questions we have are on Maya. We've had quite a few and we've picked out a, a couple. Um, the first one is from Ritika. If everything is Maya, then what about evolution? If the real world is unreal, just a projection of Maya in our mind and consciousness, then how come we all experience the same world? The projections in different minds could be different, just like our dream experiences are different for each individual. But we all experience the same real world, so how can we say that this real world doesn't actually exist? And then Shorkin asks, if we are like waves in the ocean or con of consciousness, why do we singularly, as well as collectively, see the same patterns in the world, for example, notions of joy, sorrow, good, evil. If jivan muktas have realized Brahman, which is infinite, how can they interact with the finite and for what purpose? A wave does not know its true nature, for it is for it to know that it is infinite, it should have an identity distinct from the infinite, else there is nothing to know and by no one. All right, these are very deep philosophical questions. Questions about Maya. Brahman is a simple fellow. <laughs> the Absolute is a pretty simple guy. You know? But Maya is difficult. Maya is basically the principle in Advaita Vedanta where the one appears as the many. The old, old question in metaphysics is how does the one become the many? And there are different ways of reconciling this. One, uh, one approach is the materialistic approach, which says um, 
Um, there is no one ultimate reality. It's a pluralistic world and multiple realities. So some philosophies, um, the Charvakas, the ancient Indian materialists, or even the, um, the logicians, the Vaisheshikas, Nyayikas, they were pluralists. There are multiple realities. So the one is denied. There is multiplicity. That's, that's the reality. Modern science would sort of fall in this category, except that there is still the search for the grand unified theory. We're trying to understand if everything came from one, one reality, ultimate reality. Sankhya would say that both are parallel. The one and the many are parallel. Um, there, is, um, there is the consciousness, which is again multiple. Like uh, each person is an infinite awareness. Not one infinite awareness, but multiple infinite awarenesses. And the physical world outside is actually all of it is a transformation of one prakriti, one nature. That is Sankhya. It's basically a dualism of consciousness and uh, matter. Then um, Vishishtadvaita, qualified monism, would say the one and the many, the many are parts of the one. There is one reality and the many are parts of it. So just as we, I'm one, but here is one body and the hands and the legs and uh, the head and the tummy, they're all parts of one body. Similarly, one Brahman, one absolute and the material universe and also sentient beings like us, we are parts of that absolute. That's another way of dealing with, uh, with the problem of the one and the many. What does Advaita Vedanta say? Non-dual Vedanta. It says the many is an appearance in the one. There is only one reality, and it is experienced as many. Why would the one be experienced as many? There is, that's where Maya comes in. Maya is the, is the principle which does not make the one into the many, but makes the one appear as the many. It's like, if you look at the ocean, you have 10,000 waves in the Atlantic Ocean. From the point of view of waves, there are 10,000 entities, thousands and thousands of entities. But if you change your perspective and see, look at it as water, it's one body of water. So, one pure being in which all of this appears and is experienced and disappears. So, you can see the connection of this with the meditation which we just did. <laughs> so, Maya, then what is Maya? And that's a very difficult question in Advaita Vedanta, much more difficult than Brahman. I'm reminded of somebody who asked, a disciple who asked Swami Vivekananda, Swami Vivekananda was particularly pleased with the disciple and said, you ask me anything? And he said, please explain to me what is Maya. And Swami Vivekananda said, ask something else. <laughs> and the disciple said, it's recorded, the disciple said, if getting a teacher like you, I do not understand what Maya is, then I'll never understand it in my life. So that's the answer I want. And then the disciple records that Swami Vivekananda started speaking to him, and it was a tremendous experience. The disciple says that the room literally started spinning around him, and that's the experience he got. And the external world seemed to disappear, and his own body and Swami Vivekananda's body, from his own experience, it seemed to disappear, where in this great mass of luminosity, there was only the voice of Vivekananda speaking. And then, this disciple, he burst out saying, Oh Swami, this is the only reality. 
And everything else is an appearance. It's all my, it's an appearance. Even you and your, um, even this work, you know, the, the Ramakrishna mission, the order, which you are starting, all this work that you're starting, it's all Maya, it's an appearance. And here, you're speaking in Bengali. So in Bengali, there, in, like in, in different in, in Indian languages, when you address somebody else, there are different, um, uh, it, it represents, the, 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 the term that you use, the pronoun you use, it re, uh, represents different levels of intimacy. So with a revered elder, you would say apni. With uh, somebody who is very close to you or a child, you would say tumi. Now, he's a disciple and Swami Vivekananda is his guru. So he should say apni to Swami Vivekananda. That's what he always did. But he suddenly thought, why am I calling Swami Vivekananda tumi, which is used to for somebody of very close to you, intimate to you, or to, some, like to a little child. The moment he thought that, the world snapped back into place. And he could see Swami Vivekananda sitting there and smiling at him and saying, yes, that is true, what you, what you just said, it's true. If you can realize that, be one with Brahman and be done with it. If you cannot, then come and help in this work. <laughs> I'm not trying to avoid the question. <laughs> the questions are about Maya. There was a question on evolution and uh, two questions which were similar across the two persons who asked why if all this is a projection why are we all seeing the same reality that was the second question the third question was the jivan mukta the enlightened person must have a separate identity to realize the oneness if there's only one reality who realizes what so this, these are the questions these are related to maya the first um, let me take the second question first why do we share a common reality with a projection? The underlying thinking is, like in a dream, we understand our dreams are projections of our minds. In our dreams, we all have individual dreams. If I saw you yesterday in my dream and I had a cup of, shared a cup of coffee with you, you wouldn't remember that because you, what all that happened, the cup of coffee and you in, and I in the dream, they're all projections of my mind and you did not share that experience. So, each person has a separate dream. If this world is indeed somehow dreamlike, because the dream example is used so much, if this world is some, indeed somehow dreamlike, how is it that we are all sharing this experience? Not only that, later on if you meet each other, you, you would all agree, yes, we were there for the class on Sunday at Vedanta Society. So you, we had a shared reality. Then how can you say this is dreamlike? This is definitely something real because it's out there and we are sharing it. Do you see the question? The answer is, it's very simple. If you look at the dream example itself, in the dream, you are there, other people are there, and you're experiencing a common shared reality. Is that not so? This one itself, right now, it could be that we are dreaming, that you are dreaming, not us. We are all part of your dream. You could snap up, sit up, and oh my God, it's already 12 o'clock and I missed the talk at the Vedanta Society. I was napping. It could be. There's nothing impossible about it. And in your dreams, you always think that you're awake. She asked, but I'm awake now. But in your dreams, we always think. We don't think in our dreams, um, I am sleeping in my bed and dreaming. We don't think that. We think we are awake. We think that we, ha we, are, we are in a community of people 
uh, sharing the same objective reality. The same places, the same food and the same talk and everything is, is like an objective reality. We don't doubt it for a moment. So how can you say, so exactly like that. Now the difference is only this. Our dreams, from our waking perspective, our dreams are definitely different because they're projections of our individual minds. Here, it's not a projection of an individual mind, it's an appearance in one consciousness. So that, this is the thinking that Gaurapada uses in the Mandukya Karika, in the Mandukya Upanishad, Mandukya Karika. So in principle, there is nothing to distinguish, in principle, your dream from your waking experience. In both, you seem to share a, a public reality with others. It's only from another point of view, you realize that it was all an appearance. So from your waking point of view, everything in the dream is you understand it was, an, if it was a projection of my mind, the dreamer's mind. From the Turiya, the, the enlightened person's point of view, from the Atman point of view, you realize that everything was in awareness. The meditation we did now, just before this session, did you notice what I, what I said, that we were noticing all the sounds in awareness? You see, we noticed all the sounds in awareness, not just sounds. Thoughts, feelings, perceptions, um, uh, all kinds of sensations, they were all in awareness. That's what is meant by being projected in awareness. We still have this, this idea that, yeah, that there's a sound outside and I'm aware of it. There are two things. There's a real sound outside and I'm aware of it. That's how, what we think. But if you think a little more deeply, you'll see that whatever you are aware of, it's all in, in your awareness. You're never aware of two things, your awareness and a sound outside your awareness. You see, what I'm saying is, this piece of paper and this clock, they are two things, separate things. How do you know? You can see the clock without the paper. You can see the paper without the clock. Right? And that's the proof that two separate entities, you can, they can be experienced separately. But your awareness, the awareness which we are, and the objects of that awareness, sounds, thoughts, feelings, emotions, they cannot be experienced separately like this, one without the other. You cannot experience, obviously, by definition, experience requires awareness. You cannot experience a sound without your awareness. Every object is experienced in awareness. That's what is meant by saying that they are all projections of awareness. Let me just complete this. Um, evolution, the question of evolution, the reason why uh, the questioner has asked this, I think, is that how could this tremendous diversity, which can be explained by evolution, how could you say it's a projection? The reason the person is asking that is, um, somehow it's in our minds that it, this universe, physical universe is a projection of our limited mind. But that's not what Vedanta says. It's not what Vedanta says. It's a projection in Brahman, in the Absolute. And evolution can definitely be accounted for. for. You, can, you can accept evolution easily. There's, see, the beauty of Advaita Vedanta is it does not deny or go against any established scientific doctrine. One should not. Uh, it, it easily accommodates that. 
what does evolution explain? It explains the multiplicity of living forms. How did, did all these plants and animals come about, this diversity? All of the, uh, this and uh, the evolution which produced all of them, they are all experienced in awareness. That's all that Advaita Vedanta is interested in. They're experienced in awareness. They all share being, isness. That isness is sat, pure being. That awareness is chit. And that's what Advaita is, is interested in. Before we became uh, aware of um, Darwinian evolution, what held sway was a kind of creationism. That the theistic religions of the world said that God created all of these things. Fine. But all of these things, they share being, including God. That's all that Advaita is interested in. God and, and his creation, blessed both are, they all share in existence. That being, that, in fact, even in Christian mysticism, it is called the, the ground of God, the ground of being. That's what uh, Advaita is talking about. And I mentioned this earlier. The first um, scholar to write an English Sanskrit dictionary, Monier Williams, he writes that these ancient Hindus were Darwinians a thousand years before Darwin. <laughs> Not that there was a fully full-blown theory of evolution. There wasn't. There wasn't. We're not making such claims. But you can see the, the seed of that, the, the prototype of that. For example, even the Dasha Avatar, the ten incarnations, you see the bodies the incarnations are supposed to have inhabited. From a fish to a tortoise to an, uh, an animal body, a boar to a half animal, half human body to a, f to a, a human body and so on. <coughs> I think, and the enlightened person, the question about the enlightened person, the enlightened person must have an individuality to experience oneness. No, no, no. You see, the individuality can be a part of the appearance. And the oneness is the reality behind the appearance. To experience something, to know something, you must have definitely a body-mind. But that body-mind refers back to that background existence consciousness. The wave, that's a good example. The wave can continue to exist as a wave, but understand that itself and all waves and the entire ocean is one mass of water. You can have both. You can have an underlying unity and an appearance of diversity. You can have an appearance of individuality and the reality that there is an absolute behind that individuality. Both are possible and that is what is happening right now. See, our problem is this. Um, we take the individuality, it's as if the wave thinks of itself as wave only as a wave. And it sees other waves around it. It does not see the underlying unity of water. That there is, we are all one substance, one reality. It does not see that. So it sees itself as cut off from all others. Its infinitude is lost. As Vivekananda said, this universe is the wreckage of the infinite on the shores of space, time and causation. The universe is a wreckage of the infinite on this. Only Advaita Vedanta says that it's not wrecked. It only appears fragmented. The underlying unity is preserved. Brahman is still there. It's not that it was an absolute, now it is broken up into uh, all these pieces, all of us. 
and one day after the universe ends or something like that, we will all be one or after enlightenment, we will all, all become one. No. The oneness of water is preserved even if there are thousands of waves on, on the surface of the ocean. It's still one body of water. It is wa water and water only. What else is there in the ocean except water? Only water. Similarly, what else is here except existence, consciousness, bliss, Brahman? Only being. And this appearance goes on within this, within, uh, this existence, consciousness, bliss. So we'll leave it at that. There was a hand uh, who wanted to ask. You have to come here, though. They're recording it. Do you tell us your name and ask the question? Hi, <coughs> Stephanie Purcell. Um, with the meditation, we first let uh, impressions come, uh, sounds and other uh, bodily experiences, and then you led us to an awareness of the awareness within. Yes. So um, that is an experience too, and isn't that also an object? And how is that step or that experience different from experiencing other objects? Right. And what is the next step? How do I get basically from uh, apni to tumi. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Stephanie. Um, <laughs> you said yes. Is the, is the awareness, the primal awareness, the chit, chaitanya, is it an object? Actually not. To the extent that you see it as an object, it is not the ultimate awareness. The one which is seeing it as an object is the awareness. And we must not try to objectify that awareness. We have this tremendous desire, this tremendous urge to objectify. Yeah. Nothing wrong with it. That's what enables the Absolute to experience itself as the universe. Oh good, I came up with that. It's a very profound sounding sense. <laughs> but it's true. It is this ability to objectify itself that enables Brahman to experience itself as this universe. And so we also, being Brahman in depth, we are that reality. We have this tremendous desire to objectify. So, if it is a thing which you can see, smell, hear, taste, touch, it's real. Little more subtle. If it is something that you can think, remember. Now you see, subtle, inside. Not hear, smell, taste, touch, not an object of the senses, but something in the mind. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, desires, ideas. But they are also objects. All of these gross and physical objects outside and subtle mental objects inside both appear and shine in one consciousness. The moment I say this, the immediate tendency is to objectify. Ah, let me see. Yes, I get it. There is that consciousness. No, 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 it is not. The one which said, ah, there is that consciousness, that awareness, that one is the awareness. Now you'll try to make that one into an object. <laughs> Don't. There is no need at all. There is no need at all. You are that and you are absolutely pure and fine as that object. As that, as that, that uh, pure subject which is not an object. Which cannot be objectified. 
then this objectifying tendency, all it does, really, spiritually speaking, its value is to point out the pure subject, which is not an object. Every objective experience, like that meditation we did, we did it with sounds. You can do it with forms, uh, you can do it with uh, taste, touch, you, know, you can do it with um, uh, smell, you can do it with thoughts, you can do it with memories. The thing is, what happens is, when, when an object comes, a sound comes, we become involved with it and we start thinking about it. Oh, the stairs are creaking, somebody's going upstairs. We're thinking about it now. Instead of doing that, stairs are creaking, it appears in media awareness. Oh, is this awareness an object? This, this is also a thought which is shining in awareness. As you do that, you'll fall silent. The awareness remains by itself. It always remains by itself. It is like a, sp it is spacious in which all of this appears and disappears. This space, for example, it does not resist us. This space in the room, it enables us to sit here. We fill up this space with chairs and people and things in the, and the space accommodates all of us. Think of that awareness as a space. In fact, the Mandukya does that. Akasha, space, is used as an example. Your awareness, that the awareness which we are, is like a space in which all of this appears. Now, you might think that all these chairs and people and things, they are different from the space. They come and fill up the space. But in that space of consciousness, there's a term for that, beautiful term. Chidakasha, the space of consciousness. Imagine that. In that, all of these things, are, they don't come and fill it, fill it up. They all arise from it, exist in it, and disappear. How do they arise from it, exist, exist in it, and disappear? Just like in wood. It was a log of wood. You fashioned an altar out of it, or a, or a table out of it. And one day it might break, and it will still be wood. So the, the table, it arose in, this, in, the, in the wood, it, it is now shining and being used and existing in the wood. And one day, if it is no longer a table, it would, it would have, in one sense, gone back into, into the wood itself. In that way, all the objects that we see, they arise in awareness. They are experienced in awareness. By the awareness. The awareness first experiences the object called mind. What is the object called mind? Thoughts, memories, ideas, desires, good and bad. It is directly experienced by consciousness. And then through the mind, it experiences a body and sensory system. And through the mind and body and sensory system, it experiences that awareness, experiences an external world. See, that awareness now becomes or appears to be a person. Stephanie. It is that one awareness. The two are, they are not actually two. It's not that I am a living being, an individual being, this body-mind complex, and there is a higher, separate, supreme self. No, there is only that separate, that, that higher, supreme self. There is only that. That one alone exists, and it appears as an individual. And it seems to experience an external world. Yeah. So the takeaway from this is, your reality, that awareness, is not an object. 
Use it in this way, in meditation, in your inner, inner investigation. Whatever appears to be an object, use neti neti, not this, not this. Whatever appears is also that pure consciousness, but until one realizes that pure consciousness is oneself, keep on going uh, inwards, subtler, the background. And when you realize I am that, that will also be a thought in the mind. But it points to that, that one, one identity. Then you look outwards and you see all of this is in me, in me that consciousness. One must ultimately come to this, this, um, this realization of oneness. You can do it in different ways. In the Mandukya Upanishad, in, in the Mandukya Karika, third chapter, Gaurapada calls it Akarpanyam. A very beautiful term. Karpanyam means smallness, pettiness, um, individuality separated from others, fractured. It literally means, the Kripana word it means miser, miser. Krishna uses it in the Gita and Upanishad it comes. The condition of being an ignorant person, the unenlightened, is, is the miserliness, the smallness. And this is overcome by this magnificent vis vision of what he calls Akarpanyam. The, Gaurapada calls non-dual philosophy akarpanyam, the non-miserly philosophy, the, the infinite philosophy, the completely open and abundant philosophy. It does, does not have to be in the language of non-dualism. It can be. If you think, what is this world? If you think all this world is one absolute reality, Brahman, fine, that is akarpanyam, the non-miserly vision. If you think, I, the pure consciousness, am all this world, that's also fine. Akarpanyam. If you think, number three, if you think Maya, the question which we had earlier, the entire universe is an appearance of Maya in me, the pure consciousness, that's also fine. That's also Akarpanyam. If you think in terms of duality, God, that God alone is appearing in all these forms, that's also fine. That's also Akarpanyam. It must be one of these um, uh, approaches to the universe outside, to all people, all beings, to the life of this individuality. This akarpanyam, this vast vision. Yes, that's a very be beautiful way of putting it. This vast vision. In contrast to this is the vision of the unenlightened individual. Where I am separate from all of you. God may or may not exist. Even if God exists, is a question of belief. I subscribe to it. And I have some kind of working faith in God. Especially when I'm in trouble. <laughs> or I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Or an agnostic. In any case, not particularly interested. Here is this real world for me outside. Which I, which, which I have to struggle. I have to make my way in this world. And one day I shall, this world will crush me out. Body will die. And maybe I'm dead and finished and gone. This is the view of the unenlightened person. This is called Kripana, the miserly view. So we must move from the miserly view to the vast view. Do it by devotion. Perfectly all right. Do it by devotion. Do it by knowledge. Jnana. You recognize this vastness already existing. The wave must become 
not, not only one with the ocean. Directly for the wave to become one with the ocean is difficult. Why? Because I am this little wave. How can I be one with the other wave? How can I be one with this wave and that wave and this wave? No. Let alone the entire ocean. I am just this much. The only way that the wave can become the ocean is if the wave realizes I am I am water. Think about it. The moment the realization comes I am water the boundaries between me this little wave and the next wave and the next wave the boundaries dissolve. What boundary is there between water and water? No boundary. Not only the boundary between me and the next wave no boundary between me and any wave and anything in this vast ocean. I become literally the entire ocean. By realizing I am water. Similarly, by realizing I am pure awareness. Everything in this universe. Men and women. Hindus, Muslims, Christians, uh, Buddhists, atheists. Living beings, non-living so-called matter, this entire physical universe, past, present and future, they all become appearances in me, nothing other than me. This is Akarpanyam, the vast vision. Thank you, Stephanie. That's a very good question. Um, hold on. Now we have a question from the... Uh, no, we have a question from the, uh, uh, the virtual audience. Please come. Then we'll, I'll come, come to you. Uh, th this is a question from Bill Y. here in Manhattan. Vedanta scholar Ayan Maharaj gave a talk at the New York Vedanta Society in which he argued that Sri Ramakrishna's understanding of Maya was not in fact in line with that of classical Advaita Vedanta. Maharaj claims Sri Ramakrishna held that the world, though impermanent, was nevertheless real and not an illusion, as commonly understood in Shankaracharya's and other interpretations of the Vedic texts. Doesn't this necessarily involve some kind of dualism? You yourself have often maintained that the world is an illusion appearing in consciousness, in substance, nothing more than a dream. What are your thoughts on Ayan Maharaj's argument or on any of his Vijnana yoga ideas stemming, as I gather, from Kashmir Shaivism? Very difficult question. <laughs> and it's a work in progress, you must understand. I fully support and back what Ayan Maharaj is doing. Uh, not because I think Shankara's Advaita is wrong, Quite the contrary. You see, it is not against Shankara's Advaita, what Ayan Maharaj has said, but it's an extension, building upon Shankara's Advaita. The way Sri Ramakrishna talks about Vijnana Vedanta, what, what Ayan Maharaj calls Vijnana Vedanta, is not possible without Shankara's Advaita. You can't have it based on a strictly dualistic framework. From, because remember, Sri Ramakrishna also accepts fully Shankara's Advaitic position, but goes beyond that. Um, I am not in a position to argue that out rigorously. By the way, there was an aside about Kashmiri Shaivism. Uh, 
uh, Ayan Maharaj's approach is not entirely based on Kashmiri Shaivism. Only thing is, Kashmiri Shaivism is such a comprehensive uh, philosophy that um, one great philosopher, Arindam Chakravarti, told me that if you want to really understand and appreciate the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, you should study Kashmiri Shaivism more than Shankara's Advaita Vedanta. But remember this. Once, when Swami Vivekananda went to the Advaita Ashram in Mayavati, in the Himalayas, which he had established specially for the uh, practice of non-dualism. He writes in a letter, I have set up these two places. One is Belur on the Ganges, where all rituals and, and um, worship will be followed in a very dualistic manner. It will be followed there. And this place in the Himalayas, the, for uh, the practice of pure Advaita. Now when Vivekananda visited the Advaita Ashram up in the Himalayas, he found a picture, this picture, of Sri Ramakrishna kept there and the worship had started and, Sri, and Swami Vivekananda said, what, the old man has entered this place too? <laughs> Rem remove that picture. So one of the monks was hurt, his feelings were hurt because he was worshipping it. He wrote to the Holy Mother, to Masharada Devi, that Vivekananda says, remove the picture of Sri Ramakrishna. We are worshipping the picture of Sri Ramakrishna. Is that wrong? And of course he expected support from the Holy Mother. To his shock, she wrote back saying, remember, your guru was Advaita, non-dual. And I can say with great certainty, you are all non-dualists, Advaitin, Advaita Wadi, the word he. Very interesting, the word she used. She didn't say Sri Ramakrishna was a non-dualist. He said your guru, Sri Ramakrishna was non-dual, meaning that he was the non-dual Brahman, an incarnation. And then, he's, then she says, I can say with, with full certainty that you are all non-dualists. And therefore what Naren, that means Vivekananda, has done, he has done right. So, then why don't you remove the picture of Sri Ramakrishna everywhere? See, this is the beauty of Ayan Maharaj's approach. He says Sri Ramakrishna's approach was not exclusively a classical Advaita. It accepted everything of classical Advaita. But also building on that, you can have dualistic worship with a non-dualistic background. Can't a wave, we are using the wave example, can't a wave who has realized that I am the entire ocean, I am water, the entire ocean, can't it still make friends with the other waves? Of course it can. It will be much more friendly now because it knows I am that. Yeah. As even when you realize I am the Brahman, I'm the one reality of this entire universe. You still will have experienced yourself as a body-mind. And as a body-mind, now you'll be called a Jivan Mukta, an enlightened person. You'll interact with others knowing that you are Brahman and yet fully capable of acting as an individual. In fact, much more capable now. What the Buddha said, I'm awake. Buddha literally means the awake, awakened. You've awakened to reality. All others are in fact sleepwalking or fully asleep. You are the one who has awakened to reality. Why will you not be capable of interacting with others as an enlightened being? So, um, Vijnana Vedanta, Sri Ramakrishna gives many, many examples. I think it's high time that this work was done. Um, rigorous philosophical interpretation and system building based on Sri Ramakrishna's teachings. 
Sri Ramakrishna gives many examples. He says a person goes and enters into a house and goes through the door and climbs up the stairs, leaving the ground floor and the first floor and all behind and goes to the uh, rooftop. And then realizes the bricks and the mortar and the, the cement the rooftop is made of, of uh, the, the stairs and the ground floor and everything that he left behind, all of them are made of the same substance, of the same reality. In the same way, when you do the neti neti, not this, not this, not the external world, not the physical body, not the mind, uh, beyond that, that one non-objective, pure subject consciousness, that's only stage one of Advaita. It's still not Advaita. Stage two is when you look back upon what you left. You left the mind and the body and the external world behind. When you look back upon that, you realize they are all nothing other than this pure consciousness with names and forms. They are all of this. All of this is that pure, pure consciousness, that being consciousness place. That is Vijnana. Now you function in the world knowing that you are Brahman and everybody else is too. Sri Ramakrishna also says that this understanding can provide a basis for your bhakti. It can provide a basis for your karma, for your meditation. You have a body. Why will you not work? Of course you can work. If somebody said, after, non, after realizing I am Brahman, what will I do? Well, you are walking, talking, eating, drinking happy, happily. So why can't you do, go out and do karma yoga and serve the world? And, or hold a nine to five job and you can do anything you want. You, somebody asks, can I worship God after, after all, am I not worshipping myself? See, this is trying to mix up two levels. In Advaita Vedanta, you talk about the, the higher truth, Paramartika, the absolute truth, and the empirical or the Vavaharika, transactional reality. So realizing that I am Brahman, and now that Brahman appears as this individual being, and this vast world, and God, the creator of this world, Ishwara Jiva Jagat, this triangle, then what is the role of this individual being? To worship God? Why not? If you can eat and drink and uh, do everything else in the world, what, what harm has God done to you that you will not worship God? <laughs> Always in these cases, look at the lives of the enlightened people. Did Shankara not worship? Of course he did. Some of the most beautiful hymns to Krishna, to Ganga, to Shiva, they're all written by Shankaracharya. Is there a contradiction between Shankara the Jnani and Shankara the Bhakta? Absolutely not. It seems to be a contradiction. Why? From the view of classical Vedanta, it seems to be classical non-duality. It seems to be a little bit of contradiction. But from the view of, from viewpoint of Sri Ramakrishna's Vijnana Vedanta, perfectly all right. So that's the beauty of Vijnana Vedanta. I'm sure we'll hear much more of this over the years and decades to come. Um, I'll sh I would like to share that uh, the book he has written, Ayan Maharaj, um, Infinite Paths to Infinite Reality. That book, um, the International Journal of Hindu Studies, IJHS, has... Um, decided to bring out a special issue on that, that book only. And they have invited 10 noted scholars from all across the world to read that book and give their views on, their on that book. And they, have, they will give Ayan Marge an, a chance to respond to those views and the whole thing will be published. As, so, remarkable. 
I think it's an idea whose time has come and it's going to take off over the next decades and centuries. It's a beautiful idea and it's um, really harmony and peace can be established on the basis of this idea. Somebody had his hand up, the two people. I'll ask you first and then yeah. come. Tell us your name and ask the question. Hi, my name is Navid Gupta. Yeah. Here is my question. We say that Brahman is the supreme reality. Is the constant experience of Anahat Nad or the unstruck sound during the waking state an experience of Nirguna Brahman? And the second question is, the answer to the question, who am I? It seems to point towards silence. My question is whether the Anahat Nath is the answer to this question or is it not an answerable question altogether? All right, the Anahat Dhvani which he referred to is a mystical experience. It literally, it means the unstruck sound. So sound is always meant by the contact between two things. Just now we heard the clicking of a door, this one. This is a struck sound, ahata. But anahata means that which is unstruck. This is a beautiful concept and it's actually an experience. It's actually like a sound which you can hear, but um, it's not a produced sound. It is said to be the um, eternal background uh, uh, vibration of the universe. Let's put it this way. There's a whole theory of that of which I do not know much. But it, point, it is not the Ad Advaitic Brahman. It points to the Advaitic Brahman. It represents the Advaitic Brahman. Because the Advaitic Brahman is not a particular experience. It's not a particular mystical experience. So suppose you do not experience that anahata, Are you, can you still be enlightened? Yes. Suppose you do experience that anahata dhvani, uh, are you uh, enlightened? May not be. But it's a very advanced stage in spiritual experience. There was a Swami in our order, I never met him, but I've heard about him, a disciple of the Holy Mother, Swami uh, Shantananda. He used to hear this. Continuously without a break. And uh, he asked the Holy Mother once, Masharada, this is my experience, is it true? And uh, she said, yes, my child, what you are, what you are experiencing is, is, is right. So it's a very advanced spiritual experience, mystical experience, no doubt. And he used to experience that, he used to uh, hear it. In later life, I've heard from senior monks, he would ask visitors, do you hear something? <laughs> Yeah. I met one person who hears this. I will not share the name because he's still there. A very, in a very interesting person. He's a multimillionaire. He is um, um, he's very young and uh, very, uh, he is a very well-known motivational speaker and um, very deeply interested in Okay, even if you know him, don't tell the name. <laughs> Very deeply interested in non-dualism, in Advaita Vedanta. And we had a long talk about this. One of the subjects which came up was this one. And then he told me that he, uh, he hears this and he has been hearing it for a, for a long time. That's when he became transformed after this experience. And he's been looking uh, towards the, trying to meet other people and trying to get explanations of this. Yeah. All right, thank you. Thank you, thank you for the question. Yes. 
and then we'll go back to the virtual audience. Please tell us your name and ask the question. Thank you, Maharaj. Ranjit Mitra, my name. My question is that the concept of universe, where, where it says that I am the uni you, why are you, basically they're saying, how does that differ with this consciousness and the theory of Obang Manushagachar or, or God that we really try to understand? Because looks to me like everything is relative, but is there an ultimate thing versus uh, versus a relative truth like like we go to galaxies we send we are sending uh, satellites to moon and other extraterrestrial places like towards Pluto or taking pictures so they are reality in a way they are re reality but they are not they are not the ultimate reality because when we say that. The, about the creation, about understanding, about I am the universe, but if I'm not there, then the universe is not there, it will still be there. I know that I'm making a mistake of limited I versus the real I, but still this is the the concept that I think is difficult to understand, is we hear from the Sastras that God is Obang Manasagotur, and how does that different, how does it differentiate from consciousness, or we call it, all right, I'm getting two related questions from that. One is, how is this universe related to the absolute? What's the relationship of this, this universe which we experience to this absolute we are talking about, Brahman? One. Second question I'm, I'm sensing there is, is this universe real? It seems to be real, and yet you seem to be saying that it's not real. How is this universe related to that? Um, are they separate? The absolute Brahman, are they separate in this universe? No, they are not separate. If they were separate, notice what you, what you call Brahman, Brahm, what Brahman is. Brahman is being itself, existence itself. Logically, if, if, if there is such a thing which is existence itself, and if you say something is separate from existence, what will it become? Non-existent, yes. Something other than paper is not paper. Something other than human is inhuman. Something other than existing is non-existing. So if, some, if there is a universe apart from Brahman, you're literally saying if it is other than existing, then it's a non-existent universe. So the universe cannot be apart from Brahman. Just It's like saying, can that wooden table be apart from wood? No. Can the clay pot be apart from the clay or the gold ornament be apart from the gold? No. All right, this is one. So it cannot be apart. Then what is the relationship? Is it the same as Brahman? No, not quite. Literally the same as Brahman? No, not quite. Because we don't really see anything as pure consciousness and bliss and all of that. We see men and women and people suffering and struggling in life, living beings, non-living beings, a physical universe, which does not seem to be very absolute or Brahman-like. Things are born and they change and they die and suffer. All of these things are there. So this universe is neither apart from Brahman, one, nor exactly the same as Brahman. If you say Brahman is pure existence, this universe is not other than existence, but it's not pure existence also. 
this thing not being you are unable to classify it as pure being or as non-being this is in sanskrit called sat asad bhyam anirvachaniyam inability to express it as pure being or non-being this is the classical definition of maya when you study advaita vedanta there will be a definition of maya so the term used there is anirvachaniya beyond speech but beyond speech in what sense you cannot express it as pure being you cannot express it as non-being also if it was non-being it would disappear but clearly it is there we are experiencing it it's not so difficult to understand also it seems too subtle not so difficult just take this example which we use all the time the wood and the table the table is not this one the, the lectern it's not apart from the wood it's not a separate thing if it were i could show it to you separately i showed you the clock and the paper separately but i cannot show you the table and the wood separately the moment i try to do that the table will disappear not the wood not the wood this is there but the table name and form will disappear if i if i try to separate it from the wood and yet if i say it's not separate from the wood but is it the wood itself no because there was a time when it was a tree it was not a table there was a time when it was a log of wood it was not a table and there will be a time when it will be kindling or wood splinters it won't be a table it continues to be wood throughout but not a table anymore so this table is neither other than the wood itself nor exactly the same as wood itself it is sad asad bhyam anirvachaniyam or wood <laughs> not wood anirvachaniyam you, you cannot express it as wood itself you cannot express it as not wood the nature of the universe is like that according to advaita vedanta the non dualistic approaches the entire nature of the universe is indeterminate you cannot dismiss it as being no it's not there you cannot dismiss you cannot say it is the absolute reality no it is not obviously not an absolute reality things are impermanent things are subject to change things are subject people are subject to suffering there is evil all of this is experienced in the world how can it be the absolute reality so this indeterminate nature this is called another term for this in uh, vedanta one term is maya another term is mithya mithya means the false the false the word false has been misunderstood false does not mean non existence look at the difference between truth lie silence silence is no speech truth is correct speech or in sanskrit yatharta that means the uh, truth is is accurate it is real it is what is but what is a lie it's not silence the liar said something but it's not real either it's not the truth either it is a misrepresentation of the truth it's an appearance of the truth the word appearance always connotes that there is something behind it the real appears to be something else similarly brahman appears as this world so th- that is why in in vedanta this world the universe is called maya is called mithya is called an appearance now those who do not like this 
I don't want to call this world an appearance or, or a false thing. Then Vivekananda used another term, higher truth and lower truth. This world is the lower truth of which Brahman is the higher truth. They are not two separate things, no more than the wood is separate from the table. The table is the appearance of which wood is the substance, the reality. The universe is the appearance of which Brahman is the substance, the reality. Yeah. Is it consciousness or is it... You asked a question, um, is Brahman synonymous with avang manasagocharam? The Sanskrit term means beyond speech and mind. I will not go there, there will be a whole talk in itself. But notice, I'll give you one little pointer to think about. We just said, Maya is beyond speech. In what sense? You cannot express it as being pure being or as non-being. As existing, as, or as, as pure existence or as non-existence, you can't categorize it. Therefore, you are unable to express what it is. It is indeterminate. Now you are saying Brahman is beyond speech also. The absolute reality is also beyond speech, ineffable. But they are not beyond speech in the same way. This is very important. Maya and Brahman are not beyond speech in the same way. Maya is beyond speech because you cannot categorize it as pure being or as non-being. Sad asadbhyam anirvachanim. That's why Maya, the English word would be indeterminate. Brahman is not beyond speech because it's indeterminate. It's very specific. It is. It is an absolute reality for those who are enlightened. It's an undeniable reality. It's not a vague something. It's an undeniable reality. You might as well look up into the sun. Don't. You might as well look up into the sun and deny that the sun exists. No. It's as evident as that. Then in what sense is Brahman beyond speech? It is beyond speech because language cannot express it. Language cannot... Um, as Wittgenstein said, the limits of the universe, limits of language are the limits of the universe. What lies beyond, we must pass over in silence. In Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, at the end, towards the end, he says this. In two places there, he says it. Similarly, the infinite cannot be bought with, within the bounds of language. Why not? That is a whole talk in itself. Advaita Vedanta and the paradox of language. I refer you to my talk on, on YouTube. That, that was the subject. Why Brahman cannot be bought within the limits of language? Thank you very much for your question. Thank you. Yes. Let's see hands. Those who want to ask. Okay, there are two people here. We'll ask you and then come here. Yes. This question is from Pradeep in India. How can my mind always be tagged to this pure consciousness in all my work and actions? Oh. I think it's not just Pradeep in India, but a lot of <laughs> people across the world. When they listen to non-duality first, they begin to understand, and then this question, inevitably it will come up at one point or the other. I see, yes, such a thing is there. It's like a serene, changeless being, consciousness, very nice. But um, I don't seem to be somehow in that frame of mind when I'm driving, walking, talking, acting in the world. Uh, I'm mixed up. And uh, that background reality is so nice. How can I be there all the time? There's a verse in the Mandukya, the second chapter, a very beautiful verse. The last verse of the second chapter of Mandukya Karika. Tattvam adhyatmikam drishtva 
तत्वंदृष्ट्वा तु बाह्यता तत्वीभूतस्तदाराम तत्वादप्रच्युतो भवेत वेरी ब्यूटिफुल यू नो व्हाट इट सेज इट्स एन आंसर टू दिस क्वेश्चन सीइंग दैट रियलिटी ब्रह्मन विद इन एंड सीइंग दैट रियलिटी आउटसाइड you become that reality you are that reality and you find bliss and peace and completeness in that reality and never slip away from that reality the last quarter tatvad aprachyato bhavet what do you become you become that which can which can never slip away from that reality and um, i'm feeling the questioner would say yes that's what i want Advaita Vedanta says that's what you already have. You've always had it. You suffer under this notion that I have slipped away from it. Even when you think that you have slipped away from it, you have not. Let's see how I can put it. There are many beautiful ways to put it. First of all, notice this one. i am that reality it's not that reality it's not brahman it's not atman we use all those terms but those terms can be distancing sometimes yes my Br- brahman is fine but i have a problem <laughs> atman is fine my atman is fine like my liver is doing well <laughs> but i have a problem atman is you it's literally you your essence yeah even if i say your essence you say yes yeah, swami my essence is fine but i have a lot of problems in in my job in my family in in the day to day world you are that reality let's talk about that openly instead of distancing it away as brahman atman or even the word tattvam tattvam literally means an impersonal truth so i am that how can you ever be distanced from yourself how can you ever slip away from yourself what you can have you might, the objection might be but i feel it i get disturbed i get angry i get unhappy yes that wrong notion can be there that somehow there was a serenity and i've lost it it was a serenity in the mind and the mind has lost that serenity you are the one which experienced the serene mind you are the same one which is experienced the disturbing mind the disturbed mind the calm relaxed spacious luminous mind and the agitated turbulent mind you are the same one whether it's a waveless vast expanse or a turbulent ocean with waves and storms it's the same water literally the same water without any change at all even the ocean example is little uh, misleading because you'll say no swami but something is happening to that water there's a lot of ups and downs and yes but the w- water nature is unchanged water has not become not water when it is in in the middle of a storm in the same way whether you are in the depths of meditation absolutely calm quiet the world forgotten still yeah. peaceful or engaged in frantic action yeah. in a high pressure job you are exactly the same unchanging awareness it may not seem to be that but you are that 
Let me see how I can put it. Mm. The space, the space example. So Manduki uses the space example. Suppose you have different parts. And now the space, which seems vast and unlimited, seems to be cut up into different parts. The space inside the pot, in Sanskrit, ghatakasha. And the space outside the pot, called mahakasha. But literally, let me ask you, is the space actually cut off by the pot? The space which was here in Manhattan a few hundred years ago. Now we have so many densely packed buildings. Has the space been cut off? Amazing. Yeah, it looks like that. <laughs> Let me ask an even simpler question. If you have a glass of water, half full, half or half empty, <laughs> there's water and there is, uh, it, it's filled with air, but let's forget the air part of it. There's space there, which is, there's no, no water in there. And there's space in where there's water also, but anyway, just empty space. Let's forget the air for the moment. Now, when I move the glass, when I move the glass from here to there, will the water inside move or not with the glass? All of you don't seem to be sure. <laughs> this part you should be sure of because the next part is more confusing. <laughs> yes, the water does move, otherwise it would make a very wet mess here. If I move the glass and the water would splash down here. <laughs> Swami, you forgot to take the water along with the glass. No, that doesn't happen. When you move the glass, the water moves with it. Now let me ask you, does the space move with it? When the glass is moving like this, the space circumscri circumscribed by the glass, that space inside, is it moving along with the glass? Is the space moving along with the glass? Tell me, does space move along with the container, the glass, or the glass is moving through space? Glass is moving through space. Yeah. When you cut up Manhattan into so many buildings, you have not enclosed space. Space has permitted, graciously permitted the buildings to exist within itself. Now, what can happen is, in one pot, there may be smoke and soot. Maybe you lit a fire or something. In one pot, there may be holy Ganga water. In one pot, they may have dirty water. In one pot, there may be milk. Is the space polluted by the smoke in that pot? Is the space purified by the, by the holy water of the Ganga River in that pot? Yeah. No. The pot might be affected. The pot gets affected. But space does not get affected at all. I noticed in India when a person dies and the body is burnt, um, the wood is burnt to ashes and the water, there's a lot of water in the body, it vaporizes and the air around it becomes very hot because the fire is burning. But the space, is it affected right there when the body is burning fiercely? The space is not affected. It's the air which becomes hot. It's the wood which becomes burnt into ashes. It's the water which is vaporized. Look at the four elements, they are affected. Earth, fire, water, air. Space, not affected. Similarly, whatever the contents in the mind, whatever the actions of the body, you, the pure consciousness, you are exactly always the same. 
you have not departed from your real nature as pure consciousness. How can I remain connected with that? What, you, what he is asking, I know. Because it's something that we also ask. I remember, I told you earlier, once I was sitting with a monk in, in Haridwar, and one young monk was discussing non-dualism very earnestly with the teacher, with the Swami, old Swami. And finally he said excitedly exactly this question. But Swami, we must at least hold on to that idea that I am Brahman. Aham Brahmasmi ya chinta to karni chahiye. This much I must hold on to. And the Swami said, this is exactly what you must not hold on to. Because somehow I think I am Sarva Priyananda. I must, it's like saying I must hold on to it. I must keep saying in the background, I am Sarva Priyananda, I am Sarva Priyananda. Otherwise I might forget. Who am I? <laughs> Swami, you always ask who am I? <laughs> no, I never forget that. The difference between an actor who is acting as Hamlet or somebody in the open air Shakespeare there in Central Park in summer. That actor must always um, remember that I am Hamlet. Must keep in mind consciously. But suppose the actor's name is Mr. Scott. Does he have to keep remembering, I'm Scott, I'm Scott, I'm Scott. I must keep it in mind, otherwise I'll become Hamlet. No. <laughs> Doesn't have to remember. In fact, to be a good actor, must not even think about it. Must be, try to be Hamlet with all uh, intensity. Similarly, the reality which we are, you don't have to keep thinking about it, otherwise I might forget. That happens at the beginning. So once we get an intuition of what is possible, what we really are, we want to be centered in that. And that's why this question comes, give me some technique so that I can always, I noticed what you're talking about. It's remarkable. And let me re always remain like that. What Advaita says is, you always are like that. All right, one more point and then we'll go on. Very important here. It, it is what actually a non-dualist teacher would say to this question. The difference between memory and experience. In Sanskrit, smriti and anubhava. The two are not the same, they do, do not go together. When you remember something, you are not experiencing it. When you are experiencing something, you are not remembering it or you need not remember it. Alright? Now I'm showing you a clock. Look at the clock. You are, will you say, I'm seeing a clock or I'm remembering a clock? Alright. Now close your eyes and visualize the clock. Will you say I'm seeing the clock or I'm remembering the clock? Remembering. remembering. Okay, you can open your eyes. This is the difference between Anubhava experience and Smriti. Advaita is experience. It's not a not memory. It's not something I experienced earlier and then I'm trying to remember it now. The question is, how can I always remember I'm Brahman? No, don't remember your Brahman, because you're always Brahman. It's always shining forth. It's just somehow we think it's not present to us. We think it seems to be hidden. That's why we think that we have to remember it all the time. If you are looking at me, you say, Swami, I'm seeing you. Yes, you're seeing me, but are you remembering me? Say, Swami, I'm seeing you, why do I have to remember you? When I don't see you, I might remember you. This is the difference between memory and experience. 
Non-dualism is based on an ever-present experience. It's blazing forth all the time. In fact, it's the only thing that's blazing forth all the time. And we have to recognize it. We don't recognize it. You might ask, all right, so how do I recognize it all the time? You don't have to recognize it all the time also. Once you recognize it, it's done. Only thing is, you're right. There might be a period in our spiritual practice when you need to dwell on it intensively for some period of time. But remember, that's also practice. That's not enlightenment. It's remembering an ever-present object. If you're trying to remember the clock when I'm showing it to you, you're doing something odd indeed. Can we have a, we had two hands up, the lady first, and then you can come. Notice it. Recognize it, notice it. Be, don't forget your question. Let me tell you a little story I, I just remembered. I mentioned Swami Shantananda, the one who always heard the the Anahata, the disciple of Masharada. He, uh, I've heard this from senior Swamis who have met him actually. Uh, he was very childlike, like a little child. And uh, he sort of seemed to inhabit two worlds. I guess that will happen to you if you're continuously hearing the primal sound of the universe. So, um, for example, there are one or two stories about him which I'll share, how, how childlike and... It's like a like a like a radiant little boy, you know. So once he asked one of the sevaks, one of the younger monks who was serving him, um, "Why don't I see Swami Virajananda?" He said, "Kali Krishna Maharaj." Swami Virajananda was the guru of Swami Tathagatananda. He was the president of the order. He said, oh, "Why don't I see him? I haven't seen him for quite some time." And the monk said. But Swami Virajananda passed away 20 years ago. <laughs> says, ah, that's why I haven't seen him. <laughs> In Bengali, Thai <laughs> That was one. Another time, it, many people would come to meet him. But uh, it, it would depend whom he would talk to. It's interesting. Maybe he would talk to a little kid. And maybe a very important person comes to meet him. He wouldn't even talk. And it so happened that uh, this man was very rich and powerful and all, and he came. He obviously had some kind of ulterior desire in his mind, which he wanted to be fulfilled by the blessings of this Swami. So he came, came and he started, he did salutations, and he started talking in a very disarming way, and, and the Swami just kept quiet, just sat with his eyes closed. After 15 minutes, this man asked a few questions and kept on asking Swami, Swami. The Swami didn't open his eyes. Then this fine man finally got disheartened and he bowed down and he walked away. And the others were watching. The moment he walked away, the Swami's eyes flew open with, a, with the cutest smile. He said, look how I tricked him. <laughs> look how I fooled him. We don't know what was going on there, the subtext. There. Maybe that person had some strong world, worldly desire which he wanted. And he could be the most unworldly person. Uh, he he had this question. He would ask anybody who's a householder person in the world. You know, he was very sympathetic. So he would ask questions like, um, 
what do you do? Yes, this is my job. Are you earning enough for your needs? In Bengali, who say shangshar chole jai to? Is your samsara? Can you can you take care of your samsara? Are you earning enough for your needs? Is it all right? So one day comes this chief justice of the high court, <laughs> and with his flunkies running around, and somebody rushed ahead to tell the Swami, Swami, this guy, this person is coming. He's the chief justice. It's like a like a um, really big person, you know. He's coming to meet you and talk with you. Swami said yes. And Swami, when the person came, Swami said, what do you do? And somebody else said, Swami, he's the chief justice of the, of the high court of, uh, of, of the state. And uh, the Swami said, do you earn enough to take care of your... <laughs> <laughs> he was absolutely unmoved by it. <laughs> yes. All right, you can ask the question. Namaste Swamiji, my name is Pallavi. Sorry, my question is kind of a little long. Okay, go ahead. Um, so, uh, when uh, one is doing the Vedantic meditation, Nidityasana, first it seemed very difficult, but uh, with repeated listening and other practices, uh, I am I, not, I'm, I'm not saying 100%, but intellectually I was able to appreciate it. And as I went deeper into it, Initially, I thought this body and mind is doing the sadhana, but later when I went deep, like when this whatever went deeper into it, I felt like the self is trying to know itself hmm. by itself. Hmm. This was my intuitive feeling and followed by peace and bliss. Hmm. There were disturbances, ups and downs. So obviously when I'm dealing in the daily life, there will be ups and downs, right? So my mind, whenever there is like, there will be a desire for something which uh, which makes my mind restless and miserable not miserable maybe restless and sad and immediately i feel that there is a strong grace or something which is helping me realize very immediately as i am going deeper and deeper and followed by peace and then immediate serenity and calmness and bliss and then the desire for that is like disappearing like because having experienced this i don't want i know like there's no reality really genuinely there so my question here is like even this um grace whatever i am feeling which is helping me be alert maybe <laughs> if the closest i can put so i feel this is also nothing other than the self but the self has no characteristics right it is nirguna so what exactly is this? So then I have again a feeling kind of intuitive feeling like I don't know. Forgive me if I am wrong or whatever. So I feel that this like you have uh, like for a person like a body mind to be pulled into a world, you have uh, this tendencies to run for whatever, right? Like the same way this grace is an appearance in me to help me realize my, to help me realize me, I, because Followed is like a peace and bliss and... Can I... I don't know. Um, stop you right there? Sure. Two things have come up from the question. Sure. As you said, when you first thought that you're doing sadhana, spiritual practice, it's a body-mind doing this for spiritual practice, but you realize it's, a, it's, it's actually the self yes. realizing itself through yes. itself. Yes, yes. Correct. Yes. The way we talk here can give rise to the wrong notion that there are two selves. Even the language of the Upanishads and the Gita, higher self, lower self, God, individual. Um, I am the person, 
I, I, I often use this language. I'm the person and there is a supreme consciousness behind all of this. So as if uh, that's like a halo behind my head which I have to realize and I'm this person. No, there is only one self. There's only one self. That pure being awareness is the only reality there is. It seems to get entangled with thoughts, with sensations, with the personality and seems to be a limited self. Which, what seems to be a limited self? That pure unlimited self alone seems to be this limited self. So there are not two selves here. There's only that self. Yeah. Both are correct when you say it, need, it is beyond thought, beyond sight, beyond activities. Correct. But it is also true to say that that consciousness alone is the one which is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, talking. You can realize it if you think about it as I. I am that pure awareness. Correct. As pure awareness, I neither, neither talk or hear or smell or taste or touch. I, I'm beyond all, all activities, all thoughts. But I, who is sitting? Who is talking? Who is walking? I. Who is that I? That same pure consciousness, but with the uh, addition of the body-mind, the body-mind complex. It's not that the body-mind complex is a separate self and Atma, uh, the pure consciousness is a separate self. No, it is the Atman alone. So you are always that, remember that. The second thing I'll say is that when you mention disturbances come. When disturbances come, do you know the disturbances, that it is a disturbance? Yes. Who knows? You know? Yes. That one which knows the disturbance, is it disturbed? No. Well, because you have been practicing so much, you will say that, oh no, it's not disturbed. Many people might feel that, no, no, I, I get disturbed. I was not disturbed. Now I am disturbed. Again, I'll be peaceful. There's a wrong thinking there. As you said, the knower of the disturbance is not disturbed. Because the knower of the disturbance was there before the disturbance came. Clearly. Who noticed the disturbance? The one who was already there before the disturbance came. And the knower of the disturbance will still be there when the disturbance is gone. Right? So the disturbance is not something that sticks to you, the knower. It comes up in your awareness, in the light of your awareness. You, in your light it comes up. In your light it is recognized as a disturbance. In your light also you recognize disturbance gone. That light is always free of the disturbance. Now instead of saying that light, oh it's good, that light is free of disturbance. Say, I am free of the disturbance. Before the disturbance was there, were you free of the disturbance? Yes. After the disturbance has gone, are you free of the disturbance? Yes. When, now follow carefully, when the disturbance is there at that moment, you are aware of the disturbance, right? Yes. You, the one which is aware of the disturbance, is that awareness disturbed? No. No. You are not disturbed. Yeah. Let the dark cloud come in the sky. Sky is not affected. Let it be a cloudless sky. Sky is not affected. Similarly, you the awareness, let the disturbance come. What happens is we have a feeling disturbance should not come. Ah, here's a disturbance. Now I must chase after it. It's caught you. 
Now you are using the mind, which is now a disturbed mind, I have to make it a serene mind, and you get down to it. I have to sit like this, I have to breathe like this, I have to listen to the YouTube lecture, and... <laughs> all good. But at, a, at one time, you understand all of this. I can, you, whatever I'm saying, it's good to hear it. Even if you understand it at one point, it's good to hear it again. Uh, at, at one time, you must, one must come out of this. Even when the disturbance is there, you know you are exactly the same Brahman. Absolutely nothing to be done as far as your nature as Brahman is concerned. Think about it this way. You are calming the restlessness in one mind. You are using Vedanta and meditation and breathing. But you are the same consciousness in all minds. How many minds will you calm down? There are minds which are terribly disturbed in this world. Are you going to go out and calm down all those minds? No. In those minds, the consciousness shining in those minds, is the consciousness in itself disturbed? No. Is the sky in a smoky pot? Smoky? No. Is sky in a dirty pot? Does the sky become dirty? No. In a sky, in a pot, where there's holy Ganga water, does the sky become purified? No. It is always pure. You are that unchanging, ever pure, ever shining consciousness. Especially in the midst of disturbance. Yeah. That is a great help. You can still see a butt. Yeah. No, no. So my question here was exactly like, uh, so when there was a disturbance, right? Immediately there is some alertness. Uh, uh, I don't know maybe how best I can put alertness it. Alertness is a good word. Yeah, right. So then the, I'm not being deceived. Maybe I can put it like that. And I'm able to recognize the reality in there. Hmm. Right? And then followed by peace, obviously, right? Then the desire is no more bubbling up. And then followed by bliss. There is something which is making me alert, right? I don't know if I am still not getting it. Suffering so, is making you alert. Oh, okay. You see, when our real nature as that pure consciousness, pure being, that is holiness. That is always available to us. But we don't continuously think about that. I am Swami. I don't continuously think I am Swami Sarvapriyananda, I am Swami, I am Swami. I don't continuously think. But if you are somebody asks me, what's your name? I say, say, Swami. That name Swami is available to me all the time. It is continuously available to me. Not that my mind is dwelling on it. Your nature, Atman, pure consciousness, pure being, is always available to you because it's always there, eternally there. It's not that you have to always think about it. When the mind gets embroiled in suffering because of its past conditioning or because of blows from the world outside, then that suffering re recalls that your real nature. And you, you, um, you relax into the peace of that. Yeah. It's suffering. It's suffering which, which alerts you to it. This constant awareness of the Atman is not that I'm constantly thinking I'm Atman, I'm Atman, or I'm Brahman, I'm Brahman, or I'm one with God. No, not like that. That's a mantra, you're repeating it. But you're, it's not like that. Somebody, there's a website actually, a very nice name. Never Not Here. Ah, that's a good one. Never Not Here. The Atman is never not here. There'll never be a time when the Atman is not available to you. It is there. Whenever you need it, it's, it's available. Somebody asked the Holy Mother in a slightly different context. 
that are you the divine mother? And she finally had to say yes. And then somebody asked, are you always aware of your divine nature? She said, no, my child. And that way, how could I go about doing all the work that I do? Then she says, fine, this is very, very interesting. Whenever I want, it's there. Yes. One Swami told me in a very simple, uh, very cute example. He said, it's like your favorite pillow. Whenever you want to relax, it's there. You can put your head back on it and relax. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe you can take one more question. Yes, the gentleman here. And let me know when the food is, uh, is ready. Somebody wrote on the internet, why does he keep asking about the food? <laughs> <laughs> and another lady came from Vienna, Austria. She hears these discussions. Um, she said, I really enjoy these discussions, the, the conversations and questions and answers. The only regret is at the end I hear the, that there's going to be food and I don't get the food. <laughs> so she came here once and then she said, finally I get the food. <laughs> Please tell us your name and ask the question. That was in Sanskrit. His, he said his name was Subhash Sharma. And that also gives the name of his, um, his lineage and uh, uh, the place he is coming from. So all of that. All right. Please ask okay. your question. But yeah. ask the question in English. Yeah. <laughs> I, I cannot go much farther in Sanskrit <laughs> than, than that. So, so my question is, and it might be your answer may be what you just spoke about. But my question is, is not the awareness of the Brahman the same as the belief in that, that God? Are they not the same thing? Awareness of Brahman. Brahman or consciousness is aren't the two the that and the thou? Hmm. Don't they basically share the same issue of faith? It's not faith. It's rather noticing an ever-present reality. For example, right here. You can see all of this, the altar, and I'm sitting here, and the microphone is in front of you. That microphone in front of you, do you believe in the microphone or do you experience it? Do you see it? Experience. You experience it. You'll say the, very, the question itself is wrong, Swami. When we're experiencing something, there's no question of belief or not belief. It's a direct experience. Brahman is a direct experience. One of the most beautiful definitions, these are not definitions exactly, they are pointers towards Brahman. If you understand the definition and then see where it points towards. One of the most beautiful such pointers is, what is Brahman? Anubhava Swarupa Atma. The real, the, the essence of experience. Which experience? Any experience. What is the essence of experience? Experiencer, but that what is that experiencer then? 
Because experience is also a body, eyes and ears. And is that the essence of experience? It is awareness. If I have to tell you this, then I've already failed. <laughs> what is the one common thing in all experiences? By experience, I mean the simplest things. Hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, talking, remembering, getting angry, loving, hating, all of that is experience. What's the one common thing always? The one who, somebody said awareness, and you said the one who experiences. Are they the same thing, that awareness and the one who experiences? Correct. The one who experiences and the awareness are one and the same thing. Is that direct or, or is it something that you believe in? This world that you are seeing around you, the one which we are seeing around us, we, about this world itself, the altar and the, and the lamps and the microphone and the people, we don't say, I believe these are there. I say, I see it. How much more direct is the one which sees? Except only one problem there is. Why this question of faith comes up? Because the seer is not an object. We are so used to objectifying that to believe in something, we must make it an object. To, to be convinced that it exists, we must see it. It, the word it means an object. We must see it, we must hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it, or even think it, or even understand it. It's like saying, the photograph is the proof of the photographer. But the photographer is not in the photograph, unless it's a selfie. <laughs> but the photographer in, in those old portraits, you know, the painter or the photographer is not in the photograph. But the very photograph, all the people in the photograph, the photograph itself, a group photo, it, it shows the unseen presence of the photographer, the very existence of the photograph. Photograph, experience, your experience. It shows that it is happening in, in the awareness. Even in the case of photograph and photographer, it's something that we are, we are thinking about. It's a thought experiment. But consciousness is not a thought experiment. It's an ever-present reality, blazing forth like the sun. Anubhava swarupoyamatma. This self is the very nature, very essence of experience. Another beautiful, similar pointer is Anubhava Matram Param Brahma. The highest Brahman, the transcendental Brahman is pure experience. Now what do you mean by pure experience? The moment I say pure experience, immediately it gets into a mind, oh that must be something that Swamis get. We are getting lots of impure experiences. <laughs> no. What is pure experience? Uh, I'll define it very precisely for you, right now. What is pure experience? Experience minus the object of experience. In every experience, there's an object. Drop that object. There are techniques in Kashmiri Shaivism which use, there's a book called Vigyana Bhairava, which uses this to great effect. In order to point you back to the pure self. It generates an object which you have to meditate upon and then drop the object. 
like this, for example. We'll do this and then stop. Um, before we do that uh, meditation, I will um, also answer the other one we said. The question of that and thou. Yes, it's not a question of faith. That means pure Brahman. Technically, this is called Mahavakya Vichara, analysis of the great saying Mahavakya. There's a, there are different steps. Um, you have to first see what the terms mean. There's something called Lakshana, implied meaning, and then you come to a common meaning. So, what is that? The, the sentence is that thou art. Where is the sentence from? It's from the Chandogya Upanishad. That thou art. You are that. What is the meaning of that? In the Chandogya Upanishad, it means Brahman from which everything in the universe has originated. Sat. What is the meaning of thou? There thou means the questioner, the student, Shweta Ketu, who is asking the questions. That means the individual being, you, I. So this is, that is you, and Brahman is the, that, the source of the universe. Literally God, Saguna Brahman. Now there's a process, there's a, um, it's, it's a lot of philosophy of languages involved there. There's a multi-stage process in which finally you come to the, the understanding, I am pure consciousness, and Brahman is also pure consciousness, we are one and the same pure consciousness. That is the meaning of that thou art. Is it a question of faith? No. If you start with God, the whole question of God is a, is a question of faith. In Sanskrit it is called paroksha. Paroksha means beyond our senses. Beyond our senses. It's, it's some, not, God is not something you normally see or hear or smell or taste or touch or you meet and talk with on a regular basis. No. So it is something that we believe in. We have read about it, we have heard about it and so we believe in it. It is a matter of faith. Your own existence is it a matter of faith? I exist. Other people are in this room. How do you know? Let me look at the picture. Yes, that, that person was there. You were in that room. Yes. How do you know? Will you say, let me look at the picture. Was I there? No. You remember being there. You remember being here. You were here directly. Your own existence is not a matter of faith. It's a direct experience. Now put these two together. God is an infinity without any problems, omniscient, omnipotent, um, omnipresent, without any problems whatsoever, but only one problem. God has only one problem. What is that? God is based on faith. God may not exist. Do you see, see where I'm going with this? The idea of God, does God have a problem? Nothing except one. Or let's put it this way. God has no problem provided God exists. In every religion which believes in God, there is always the desperate attempt to prove the existence of God. In fact, later this month, there's going to be a discussion in uh, East Side in Manhattan. A group of philosophers will meet and the subject of discussion is, God, does God exist? So two proofs for the existence of God will be discussed and one proof against the existence of God will be discussed. So uh, it's always there. In Hinduism, in dualistic Hinduism, the Nyaya philosophers, they developed nine or ten proofs of the existence of God. Um, well known. Uh, there are texts which have more than 20 different proofs of the existence of God. None of which would be uh, overwhelming. I mean, none of which will impress you much if you actually look into it. And the Christians, um, Saint Aquinas, for example, Thomas Aquinas, five ways 
uh, that talks about five proofs of the existence of God. Why this struggle to prove the existence of God? Nobody tries to prove the existence of St. Thomas Aquinas did not try to say five ways to prove the existence of St. Thomas Aquinas. No. Why? Because my existence is directly evident. I don't have to prove it. I don't have to struggle to believe it. God's existence is um, based on faith. God has an advantage. God has no problems. Disadvantage based on faith. I have an advantage. I am obviously present. It's not a question of faith. I'm directly evident. But I have a disadvantage. I have many problems. You see where I'm going with this. There are two terms in this equation. That thou art. The thou, the individual, you, me. We, beyond any, any reasonable doubt, we exist. But our existence is a limited existence surrounded by a lot of problems. Suffering. And that is God, an infinite existence, without any problems, but doubtful. Doubtful infinite existence, certain limited existence. Bring them together. What the Mahavakya does is, when you bring them together, you get a certain infinite existence. The doubt regarding the existence of God is removed, and the infinitude of the self is removed, uh, the finitude of the self is removed. I'll repeat again, the beauty of the Mahavakya, that thou art, what it does is, when you put these two together, it will show you the undoubted existence, not a faith. God is faith. Your existence is not faith. So this, this very existence, not dependent on faith, directly revealed existence, it will use God's infinitude to show you that this directly evident existence is infinite beyond any problems. That is the whole approach of Advaita Vedanta. That's why it's so, so stunning. A problem-free, infinite, indubitable, certain existence. If only by, if we get it. <laughs> it's there for us. That's the beauty of it. That's why in Advaita Vedanta, there's no problem regarding God's existence. Somebody asked a Swami in, in Rishikesh, give me an irrefutable proof of the existence of God. Give me an irrefutable proof of the existence of God. And the answer was your existence. It makes sense in Advaita Vedanta. It does not make sense in a dualistic religion. Because my existence is not the existence of God in a dualistic religion. But in non-dualism, the two are one and the same. They're pointing to the same reality. So we'll end on that very good uh, note. The meditation I pointed out, there's no time, but let me point out what they do in Vigyana Bhairava is that they take up an object. It's like this. Lie down or it will work even if you imagine it. You lie down on your couch or your bed. Imagine you're lying on the grass in Central Park and you're looking up and it's a bright, cloudless day. Bright blue sky. When you look up there, there's nothing else except the sky. All the trees and people, are, you can't see them because you're flat on the ground looking up there. Look up. You have to keep your eyes open. Brightly. See, bright, shining, vast, limitless sky. Be absorbed in that until it seems you're falling into that vast blueness. And then at one instant, close your eyes, dismiss the sky. Move it out of your... Um, just, just let it, drop it, dismiss it. What will happen is, you'll be left behind with awareness only. That sky 
it serves to blank your mind from all objects except that sky. It's an object. But it's a limitless physical object. Then when you finally in one instant drop that limitless object, only the subject is left behind. It should become evident. Even if it doesn't, try again and try again. That's one way they do it. Food. <laughs> Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanam Astu